0: All right, this morning, uh, we're gonna continue into some of the final lessons on this little series, Growing in Faith. The whole intent of this is actually just to address some of the basic uh, means of grace that God has designed for us as his followers, as his children, to grow, to grow in our knowledge of him, to grow in our relationship with him. So we've been talking about things like uh, having your own cultivating a prayer time that is significant and personal, uh, being in the Word, what do you do just to, even in the course of, of personal devotions, what were some ideas for family devotions? And I know that some of you have been in and out of this series, some of you have been away from us, or uh, you were snowbound at home last week, or uh, Thanksgiving weekend, even our family, of course we didn't have equipped quick class, but there have been a variety of reasons and, and if we've left some gaps in there for you personally, we could do one of two things. Uh, we could maybe find a time to get together, because we want you to, to have knowledge and be equipped, uh, or depending on which lesson you left, we could just share the notes with you and let you read through them such as they are, but that would at least be a little help and encouragement for you. Now today, uh, what we want to tackle is this idea of worship. And in particular, and I use this little more formal term, Lord's Day Worship, Um, I'm not a strict Sabbatarian as some might define it, um, but I do think that this day is different and special, and thus I'm very happy to refer to it as the Lord's Day. I don't think we're in sin to call it Sunday, because that is the day of the week that, you know, we commonly recognize on the calendar. But I use that term just because I, I want you to think a little bit about what makes this day different, and how do we prepare for it, and then how do we engage in Uh, the activities of this particular day in a meaningful way as the church. So you can even see the two subheadings, uh, preparing and participating, maybe I should have said preparing for and participating in authentic worship. Um, We're just going to talk through some really practical things here this morning. One of the authors and pastors who's been really influential in my own life is John Piper, and um, I'm skipping ahead. Uh, This does fall under one of our core values of authentic worship. And by way of reminder, I put it up there for you. God made us to magnify His greatness and live for His pleasure. Therefore, the overarching goal of Gospel Hope Church is to glorify our infinitely majestic and holy God in thought, word, and deed. Our personal pursuit of God should overflow in profound reverence and joyful worship together as a church. Worshipping him in spirit and in truth with the entirety of our being, and you catch that key concept that actually what you're doing personally should be overflowing here Sunday morning when we get together. This should be the climactic moment of the week for us as we gather and and we join. Uh, all of those individual moments with God and time in His Word and prayer of petition or adoration or confession, all of it should kind of culminate in this really powerful moment uh, of corporate worship. But it doesn't always go that way, does it? As a matter of fact, sometimes Sunday morning is one of the most challenging moments of the week for various reasons. And you know, if you've got little kids, it's easy to blame it on them, isn't it? It's funny how little kids tend to follow the big kids in the house, the big people. Um, We'll talk even about some practical things there. But I want to go back to uh, a right understanding uh, of worship. I'm still getting ahead of myself here. As I was about to say a few minutes ago, John Piper, who's a pastor and author, is one of those human voices that God has used in my own soul over the last 25 years to just really awaken my soul to God in his greatness. I liken John Piper to a really good table waiter. And you know, I've used this illustration before, but if you go to a really fine restaurant, part of the experience is not just the good food, but a skillful wait staff who know the menu. There's nothing more frustrating than going to a restaurant for the first time and saying to the the wait staff, hey, what do you recommend? And like, I don't know. Or you say, hey, what can you tell me about this dish? I haven't had that. Well, John Piper is one of those pastors who so walks with God and engages with him that when he begins to speak about God, you just find yourself sitting on the edge of the seat saying, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And one of those powerful thoughts that he has shared, and I'm sorry I did not put it up on the PowerPoint for you to read along, but listen to what he says. The fuel of worship is a true vision of the greatness of God. The fuel of worship is a true vision of the greatness of God. The fire that makes the fuel burn white hot is the awakening of the Holy Spirit The furnace made alive and warm by the flame of truth is our renewed spirit and the resulting heat of our affections is powerful worship pushing its way out in confessions, longings, acclamations, tears, songs, shouts, bowed heads, lifted hands, and obedient lives. It begins though with a vision of God as He is. A lot of people think that powerful worship is something that kind of happens up here. Like if you can really get the band or the orchestra or the musicians cranking, then it gets me cranked up, and, and that's authentic worship. Eh, sorry. These can be powerful aids. There's nothing more frustrating than when you have a powerful text, either you know, the musicians or the congregation is kind of like ho hum. That's why I can't fathom that, going back to Isaiah 6, that to hear those glorious angelic be- beings cry, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah even said the, 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 the thresholds of the temple shook. So it, it's incongruent for us then to sing, holy, 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 Lord God. All. I mean, it's like, What? Now, I think that tune can be helpful, but man, there, there needs to be something under it. And whether it be the classical pipe organ, which I, I love that instrument, or other stuff, I mean, you gotta turn the volume up, though, either right here or even over there, but, but the truth compels you uh, to, to do that stuff. So a right vision of God, though, knowing God who, for who he is and what he has done is what actually begins uh, to create the kind of authentic worship that we're seeking. And then the second thought that Piper shares is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And this ties into how we define and even understand worship and then go about practicing it because if you personally are quenching the Holy Spirit Monday through Saturday, well, guess what? High probability that he's still quenched Sunday morning when you come in here. So living in obedience seven days a week is really vital to what we do here. And you've probably been in services before where you're kind of like, man, what is going on in here? What? Something's wrong in this place. It could be that a number of folks walked in with unconfessed sin, quenching the Holy Spirit. He's grieved. Now, that doesn't mean he's totally shut off. He's sovereign. He still does his work. And sometimes, though, the work is like, before Before we're going to get singing as a big group, you, know, you need to confess your sin. So there's a lot that happens with this thing of worship, and what I'm trying to do is to push us out of that thinking that says, you know, if the band is good enough and the service is, is well-constructed enough, then it's great worship. No, our, our personal vision of God and our, our fellowship with the Spirit are the first two essential ingredients in authentic worship. Now, when you look at the Scriptures, it defines worship in some very simple ways, and, and a, a just a little simple definition of worship. If you looked up the, the Hebrew in particular, went back to some Old Testament concepts. It means to kiss, which has a little different connotation in our culture. Typically we think of romance and, or family affection and this kind of thing. Well, a kiss was a common greeting. And depending on who you were and what rank you were, uh, there were different ways uh, to kiss. So that, that sometimes has reference, though, uh, to to showing adoration or even homage and respect to somebody who's a superior. The ancient Oriental or or even especially Persian custom uh, for salutation between persons of equal rank was actually to kiss each other on the lips. And I know that's offensive to us in our culture because it's like, you know what, no, (laughs) no. The difference of rank, if the difference of rank was slight, then they would kiss each other on the cheek When one was much inferior, he would actually fall upon his knees and touch his forehead to the ground or prostrate himself and throw kisses in the direction of the superior. I know, that's all foreign to us. Sometimes that's like a culturally weird thing to even hear that described. But that's some of what is is in the language of worship. So it's that last mode of salutation that the biblical writers are typically trying to capture, and in particular in the New Testament, when we come into the letters and gospels and such, uh, they are generally talking about doing reverence on your face before a a great and superior being. I think that's important for us. Sometimes that spirit of, of humility seems to be lost in worship services. And it is important for us to remember we're... We're coming into the presence of a great king. And I don't think God always demands that we be on our face before him. Uh, And that's part of my marvel that he reveals himself to us as father. But there still ought to be sense as we approach him that he is great and glorious. And the first place is to be bowed before him. So as we define worship, uh, we encounter some terminology just like this. So how do we prepare for worship because in its simplest sense, I'll go to that last bullet point, um, worship is the activity of honoring and praising God from our hearts, sometimes with voice, sometimes with body, sometimes with instruments, sometimes with songs and prayers, and sometimes with all of that. But how do we we practice that and prepare for it? Well, very simply, I want to just challenge you uh, along a couple of Specific lines. First of all, worship God daily. I hope that you already see your time in the Word is in part worship. It's not just a matter of increasing your knowledge about God, but it's engaging with Him personally. Second of all, prayer. I'm going to state this um, in just a few minutes with regard to what we actually do, but worship is actually conversation or dialogue with God, He speaks. Through His Word, we respond, sometimes in confession, sometimes in adoration, sometimes we just affirm it. He just just wants us to believe this truth, and we say, amen, yes, let it be, it is so. Um, Sometimes we sing. And I want to be careful here that I don't bind anyone's conscience, but music should be a regular part of your private worship. And maybe you say, man, I can't sing at all. That's okay. God has only called you to make a joyful noise to the Lord. And especially when you're alone, um, you know, sing out to God. And if even there you're a little too timid for various reasons, and I get that, then find some worship music that that captures the truth. And, And that's part of the reason I'm saying get stuff like this. I mean, they've recorded actual psalms or paraphrases of the psalms. And you can sing along, even if it's just from your heart, but that's, that's an appropriate part of your private worship. If all you do, though, is essentially, you know, read what's next on the list and check a box, you may not really have worshiped. Because God wants you, the, the entirety of what you are. Now I'm going to talk uh, very practically, and for the sake of time, um, just go to a few things of a practical nature how, how do you prepare on saturday nights some of you say prepare on saturday nights i've never thought of that Well, i'm challenging you to do it uh, let's let's talk a little bit about it. because this is what we hope we'll feel like when we wake up sunday mornings right <laughs> that's probably the majority of us how many of you are truly mourning people? Or maybe I should actually ask a family member, someone who lives near you. But how, many of you are fam- how many of you are truly mourning people and it's like, that is me. I mean, I'm not bragging, but man, I'm like, bing. woohoo, another day. God is great. I'm going to church. <laughs> so that that's a handful of you. I'm impressed. Uh, I don't wake up like that. It takes me a little bit of time. I don't, I don't know that that's me right there. Sometimes I feel like that. How many of you, moment of honesty and transparency, say, yeah, that's me, pretty much every day of the week. Just kind of like, meh. Is Tim the only honest soul here? Or are the rest of us like so Christ-like that (laughs) that that's us? I'm impressed. (laughs) But how many of you would say, you know what, Sunday morning, if I'm honest, Sunday morning is one of the more challenging days of the week to just get it together. Now, I won't ask you to raise hands, but... Well, let me, let me give you a few little practical things. I would just encourage you to, to start scheduling Saturdays in such a way where there's at least a little bit of a break between everything else you've been trying to jam in on Saturdays and, and going to bed. And in that little period of time, just read a psalm. And a lot of those are really short, and they're going to take you less than a minute, but read it in a thoughtful way where it it begins to crowd out whatever else was there. And I'm going to admit, because I'm a big college football fan, this is really challenging on certain Saturdays of the year where there's a big game. You know, a couple weekends ago, it was really hard, because I've cheered for Alabama all my life. We lived in Greenville, South Carolina, which is 30 minutes up the road from Clemson, and, you know, when those two teams were, you know, playing their last championship games of the season, I was really struggling to just even have one thought about Sunday, let alone. So I get it. But, but you need to build a little pause in there. Or maybe, and we've, we've stepped out of the gospel of Mark for a moment, but it's no secret, you know, and if, if we preach through chapter one and finish it this Sunday, we're heading into chapter two next week. So read Mark two. Read the next paragraph or read the whole thing, but just... Spend a little time in the Word. And then spend a little time praying. Um, And the Acts method is is a good one. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Jonathan gave us some good pointers several weeks ago. And then finally, and this may be as important as the first two, get in bed at a decent time. We're at the tail end with our kids. Our two oldest are 23 and 20. Haley and Seth, um, 18 and 16, And I get it. I was a teenager once too, but you know, it's a weekend. And if we let them, they they would stay up and out until, you know, early morning hours. But you know what we say to them on Saturday nights? The standard rule is be home at 11. If there's something special, we'll give you to midnight. But you need to be in bed at a decent time because Sunday's an important day. And I know they don't totally get it yet. They think dad is kind of an old school num num. But I don't, I don't really care. <laughs> in part because I don't want to face that. <laughs> from them or me. So, you know, we all need to get to bed at a decent time. And you decide whatever that is. Get to bed at a decent time. Because, you know, when you're well rested and you've begun that little Sabbath pause, little time in the Word, little prayer, You're shifting gears, I think, downshifting from the speed and pace of really demanding work weeks. And that positions you for blessing Sunday morning. So, if some of you are in the habit of staying up really late or staying out really late on Saturday nights, rethink that. Again, I want to be careful because I don't think this, I can't take you to chapters and verses that command the schedule that I'm suggesting on Saturday nights but I do want you to think about the cause and effect of this kind of thing, okay? So then what about Sunday mornings? Practically speaking, give yourself extra time. I won't ask for a show of hands here, but some of you are like, I stay in bed until the very last moment possible, and I've got it all figured out. Really? You know, and, and, and well, I'm gonna bite my tongue because I think I would have been preaching my own uh, things in that next little phrase. Now you all want to know what I was about to say, don't you? <laughs> but give yourself plenty of time for your morning routine, whatever that is. Um, some of you say, I never eat breakfast. That's okay. Again, that's, that's your liberty to practice before the Lord. Although uh, some of your stomachs start growling and disturbing the people next to you uh, because you didn't give yourself enough time to eat. And so maybe eat a little breakfast. But then as part of your Sunday morning thing, spend a little time in the Word. Just to, maybe you go back to the psalm that you read the night before. Maybe you read again in the Gospel of Mark and say, you know what, Danny or Matt or Kevin or, or whomever preached up to this point, so I think we're going to be here this week. And you're just reading and thinking a little bit. Another thing that we don't do this every Sunday, but have often uh, done this, that we just put some worship music. Sometimes it's instrumental, sometimes it's vocal. Um, and generally because we're not all like, woohoo, morning people, uh, we like to ease into the day, at least I do. You know, I'll generally choose stuff that is, you know, a little softer and gentler. But I'm telling you, especially with kids, um, that, can, that can set a tone. What was that? Oh, yeah, that's another thing. Yep, just tell everybody what you used to do. Well, because he preached and was at church every Sunday morning when our kids were little, I was getting everybody ready by myself. And that four kids and, you know, Sundays was just hard. And our drive wasn't really long to church, but somebody was always crying about something. Mm-hmm. So we had friends that did this, so we decided to do it. But we would either, we sang songs together, not just listening to songs, but we would actually let them pick a song. And that, of course, would turn into a fight, too. But sometimes... <laughs> or I would pick a song because they were fighting about a song. So, But we would at least try to sing something from our house to church to at least get their... Them to stop crying or whatever it was, but that really did help. Just kind of calm everybody down because Sundays are just—they're hard. Yep. Yeah. And you know, I—I I don't want to overstate this point, but I also don't want to underestimate or or ignore the fact that there's an adversary who doesn't want Sunday mornings to go well. So you better believe that some of this is the devil. <laughs> Or at least one of the demons. And maybe a few of them. And I don't, I'm not trying to make light of that. And, I'm, and again, I'm not trying to overstate it. Not all of it can be blamed on the devil. Sometimes we need to own our own sin on Sunday mornings. And let me just challenge dads in particular uh, first, and then moms, and down the pecking order. You know what, if you blow it, if you get really angry, and you just launch into some sinful tirade, which we've all done even on our way to church be the first to confess it and ask forgiveness and say, I'm so sorry, that was sinful. All that stuff can set a tone. So, you know, I, I regret that I was not in the car, uh, you know, for so many of those rides over to church, but it is fun listening to our kids even now that they're older talk about that because they remember that fondly. And even, even the part that somebody was always crying, it seems to have been the girls primarily because I think Luke was talking about that, you know, not long ago. It's like, yeah, it's you girls were always crying about something, so um, little things, um, playing worship music. And then, I'm going to step on some toes here, plan to arrive early. I know, t- I know it starts at 9.30, but c- can you come early enough to actually say hi to some people and, and greet them? And, and some of you need to grow beyond that point of like, I'm just doing well to get here at 9.30. I know, I get that. But there's more to this than just arriving on time so that when Kevin starts to play the first notes, you're in your seat ready to go. There's important ministry that happens before and after the service. And I know some of you, too, are are more like, well, you know what? I'm going to hang around afterwards and talk to people. That's great. I commend you for that. Again, I don't want to bind your conscience. There's no chapter and verse to say this is the law of the Lord I'm just trying to speak out of his law of love though that says there are people here who need you and that's the really big point. And and we all need to grow beyond that point of like church is about me and my needs and I I love it because of what I get. We hope all of that is true but we also hope you grow to the point where you're saying, you know what, church is about everybody else who's there and some of you are introverts and this is an extra challenge for you because you're like, oh, it's so scary to talk to people I don't know. Yeah, I know, I get it. Um, I've learned to do it. I know many of you would not believe me when I say I'm an introvert by nature, Um, but you can learn to do it too. And it may always be a little uncomfortable for you, but that's okay. Uh, God's not asking you to be comfortable before you uh, do stuff. He's just saying, follow me. I can't imagine Jesus arriving late, week after week, and ignoring people. I'll just put that out there like that. And I'm not directing that at any particular person who's here either, okay? Um, but if we, as we try to be like Christ, um, I think these are some practical things. Now, very quickly, when it comes to worship, you've noticed all of this stuff. You may not have thought consciously about these elements of biblical worship. We don't do all of these every week, but we do most of them every week, and then some of them occasionally. You know, there's biblical commands that we sing, Colossians 3. Uh, is one of those particular passages that commands us as a gathered people to sing. We sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We make melody in our hearts to God, and we do this as a group. We also teach and admonish one another. That's why Kevin, in particular, and, and the rest of us even chime in on this, we work hard to give texts that have substance Um. There's a reason that both here, and you need to be real careful, and to put our children's workers on the spot too, but I don't think we sing deep and wide very often, if at all, right? Gina's shaking her hands. And you know what? I, I don't even want our little kids, I'm not saying again that's wrong, but little kids can learn really substantial truth, and big kids need it too. And so we're not looking just for feely, you know, touchy feely music that gives us a sense of this is good. We, we want substance there. Uh, you've noticed that we read scripture. And even of late, we've been doing, uh, we, we've been we've been doing responsive reading, both here, and we've done a, a couple of Thursday nights as well. Um, and I'd love to see more of you on Thursday nights. Those prayer meetings have been really sweet of late. We pray together in the services. Um, we preach the word again because that's commanded. The offering itself is part of worship, and then occasionally we have communion, and occasionally we have baptism. All of those are elements of worship. Um, when I was growing up, we used to hear people say, um, refer to the singing in particular as preparation for worship, as if worship was limited to the sermon the pastor was going to preach. And I remember kind of going through some uh, development in my own thinking and other friends and such at the same time where we suddenly realized, you know what, from the first moment we open our mouths together and all of that prayer and scripture reading and the offering right up through the preaching, it's all worship. We're all engaging with God. We're all bowing in faith before Him or confessing our sins or adoring Him. We're praising Him. Uh, So these are the biblical elements of of worship. Now, I'm trying to, again, just keep this real simple. And I do want you to think of worship as something that's happening both personally and corporately. And um, this is not the only way I think we could understand it, but this is a way that's been helpful for me. It is a conversation with the living God. Why would I state it that way? Because it guards us from thinking ourselves as audience members, as those who observe. So so we sit here sometimes and sing, or even stand and sing, which is a little more helpful. But you know what? I'm not here just sitting and watching Kevin and Colleen and Kristen and Christy and John and Steve and Seth, oops, I left out Kelly. I'm not just sitting here watching them do it. No, I'm actually engaging with them. They're Again, they're like wait staff helping us to do the thing we came to do. So it's participatory. And, and you are in a conversation with the living God. We do it by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and he specifically is speaking to us through his word. Um, turn to 1 Corinthians 14. There's some really helpful things there, and I'll admit that I am still working through some of this, Uh, but there's something quite remarkable that happens when the people of God engage, I think, in the participatory way uh, that is exemplified here in 1 Corinthians 14. And as we are responding to the Word, and sometimes, as you can see at the bottom there, in confession, adoration, thanksgiving, wonder, praise, submission, consecration, and obedience, as we are participating in all of these things, something really remarkable happens. i got to bust through this. Oh, that was really good. I'm going to go back to that. But let me get to this. Um, in, in verse 14, Paul is actually trying to correct an abuse of the spiritual gifts that had emerged in 1 Corinthians where they thought the really significant sign of spirituality was to speak in tongues. And it had actually brought in a lot of confusion to the church. And so Paul is actually making the case Uh, He never tells them to stop speaking in tongues, but he tells them exactly how to do that. And then in verse 14, though, he kind of like backs up from that immediate discussion of tongues and and wants to direct their attention to what is happening as they worship together. Um, Man, I can't wait for my new glasses to get here. (laughs) Verse 24. If all prophesy, and and I'm going to... I think if we understand that prophesying as if all are speaking God's truth, and maybe we're doing that in song, maybe we're do that, doing that in our prayers or the preaching, but if, if together we are all speaking God's truth, And an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's the part all of us have. It's God-designed, it's God-ordained. And and I want each of you to see the exciting opportunity you have that, that if you're worshiping God personally all week long and then we come in together on Sunday morning and we join our hearts even though we're struggling with sin and we're fighting we're growing we're we're fighting for that growth and we're we're changing personally we're not perfect but the spirit of God comes in and people who are submitted and submitted to the word and begin singing and praying and preaching and teaching the word there really is something powerful that happens and it's not that unbelievers come in and they're impressed with us they come in and say God is alive and at work in this place wow I think we've gotten a little taste of it in in recent months, but I want more of it. Don't you? And and we invite our unbelieving friends and family members because we want them to know Jesus. And this is the vision I just kind of want you to capture. Some of you may have never thought of this before. Some of you are like, yeah, but I've kind of gotten away from it. But may God help us To engage in this way, word of caution. So I'm gonna I'm gonna back up here. That's the favorite movie for some of you, isn't it? Pride and Prejudice. Say, oh, it's toward the end, and it's not the last scene. I couldn't find a picture of the very last scene where, you know, Mr. Mrs. Darcy are seated out on the back porch or whatever you would call it. Well, you've made me watch it multiple times. And what caught my ear uh, in that last scene, where you know, she says to him, You know, Mr. Darcy, are you happy? And he one of the words he uses there is incandescently. I'm incandescently happy. Yeah, that's impressive. <laughs> Gotta remember to include that in a Valentine's card or something, right? Yes. Why would I use this as an illustration? Because I think sometimes we do to worship what the romance novels and movies do to love. say, what? What do you mean? Not that there aren't incandescent, or moments of incandescent happiness in romance, but I actually feel like Pride and Prejudice stops at the point the story's really just beginning. The hard work of love and marriage is still ahead of them you know the question will be is mr darcy still incandescently happy you know when mrs darcy you know has had the flu for 5 days and the kids are out of control and the house is a mess and work is not going well for him personally you know and it's just it's real world so follow me for a moment in movie production we write a script or adapt a great work of literature that highlights the best of love and romance and we chart the plot, we fine-tune the dialogue, and we locate it in settings ideal to the story. We shoot hours of raw footage of professional actors whose beauty is enhanced by professional makeup artists, makeup artists, and lighting experts, and whose stage is designed, constructed, and maintained by professional design teams. We put a soundtrack to it, project it on a big screen, put moviegoers in comfortable seats with enormous buckets of popcorn. And for two hours, we glimpse something of love and romance. But I think sometimes actually lose perspective on what it really takes to make love and romance work. Because if you go back to your ordinary home and you gaze in the mirror at your ordinary unretouched looks and you ponder your ordinary spouse and your ordinary job and your ordinary kids and your ordinary bills and paychecks, you could quickly become disillusioned with what you have and where you are as opposed to what you've just seen. True love and romance is built not in two hours on an HD screen, but over years of commitment and hard work, of trial and error, of a few glorious moments... When it all comes together, but mostly day by day, faithfulness and persistence in loving one another unconditionally while you work your job and cut your grass and you pay for braces and you get your family through school and sports and music lessons and schedules that are crazy. And you cling to God and to each other tenaciously while you try to make ends meet and get dinner on the table each night. And you love your spouse. You disciple your kids and you serve in your church and, then, and you do it at, without a soundtrack running in the background that's been composed by John Williams or Hans Zimmer. But what runs behind it is the soundtrack of faith, of hope, and love. True romance is built with the brick and mortar of ordinary days on a foundation of faith and the promises of Christ. And in the same way, if you make an idol out of that kind of romance and love, it can actually destroy what you have that's given you by God. And I've, I've watched over the 25 years of pastoral ministry I've been, the American church actually do that very thing with worship. I actually praise God for Chris Tomlin. So I'm not picking on him, I'm just going to use him as an illustration. There aren't too many Chris Tomlins in the world. And there are very few churches, actually, that could assemble bands that are that polished, um, partly because they don't rehearse that long and they don't have those extraordinary gifts. And furthermore, it's it's challenging because you can access that music anytime you want. And if you're unwilling, as I am, to pay money for Spotify or whatever, you can YouTube it. It's free. And if we're not careful, and, I, and I'm not saying we shouldn't listen to that any more than I'm saying you should not watch Pride and Prejudice if you want a happy marriage. You just have to keep that in perspective because if, 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 if you think your marriage is going to be that every week, or if you think that Sunday morning and normal, typical assemblies like this is going to be a big Chris Tomlin worship concert, well, you're going to be profoundly disappointed. And I don't want us to make an idol out of some, I'll even call it an artificial ideal. Because God is not more honored when an extraordinary worship leader with an extraordinary band gets it cranking on a Sunday morning. I would actually say he's most honored when ordinary people like us come in faith and make a joyful noise to God, even if it's out of tune, or it's not very well rehearsed, or we're saying, you know what, we're a pretty humble band. Not to, and I'm so grateful for Steve. We <laughs> prayed for a guitar player, didn't we? We'd take a few more. But I appreciate these guys, because nobody who's up here is going, I'm hot stuff. Not even Kevin. And Kevin's really good. You see, the heart you and I bring in here, and the hunger for God that actually has more to do with with the quality of our worship than anything else. So in a strange way, I actually hope that you're inspired. Because you may not have thought of yourself as a great musician. That's okay. The vast majority of us aren't. But with God's spirit in you and, and your just steady, faithful worship of him Monday through Saturday, and anticipating kind of the climactic moment on Sundays. And if we do this for a lifetime, oh, it brings God such joy and pleasure, and it will grow us and change us. And it will actually be evangelistic in the sense that unbelievers who come in will say, God is in this place. So that means we never let worship become a spectacle, a spectator sport. But we take the personal responsibility to fully engage with God. And we do that each day. We pursue God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And we say, God, helping me, I will be a true worshiper every day of the week. There's so much cultural current that flows against this. I was just thinking, you know, most of us, because we've, most of us have grown up in this country and we've seen a bazillion uh, television advertisements. We've been conditioned from birth that life is better if we eat cereal that's been fortified with vitamins and minerals and we wash our clothes in detergents that have stained lifters and oxy agents and we quench our thirst with beverages specially formulated with electrolytes like calcium, sodium, and potassium. So water's not good anymore and your mother's Tide detergent that she, that she used you know, 40 years ago isn't good enough and you know, just like raisin bran uh, would not be the same if it weren't like fortified with all that stuff. So we kind of feel like worship has to be supercharged for it to be really good. And that's not what I see in the Bible. God just wants you and me, redeemed ones, followers of him, going, "Oh Jesus, I love you. Speak to me. Oh, that's a convicting word. I confess my sin to you and ask for your forgiveness. Thank you for forgiving me. Oh, and now we're going to put music to that confession of faith. Oh, now we're gonna open the word and, and, and that guy's gonna preach the word to us. That's worship. And somehow, way, the living God smiles. And just like the, the smoke that ascended from those Old Testament sacrifices, I think God breathes in the air of, of this worship and says, oh, that smells fragrant from us. What a God. What an opportunity. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this privilege. And I ask that you would give us grace to love you. Just to reflect a little bit of your eternal, your infinite, unquenchable love for us. Thank you for what you've been doing here through the years. When we stand in this place and listen to people sing, just like this morning, it's for some of us it's overwhelming. It, we can't even sing at moments because it's just so good to hear a, a relatively small group sing your praises. But would you grow us personally? And I ask that by the gospel, you grow us a number until that full number is brought in, until we're actually all assembled in your presence. And like John describes, a, a vast number that no human could number Sing from the depths of their soul out of that redemptive work you've done. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive riches and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus, you are worthy now, and you will certainly be worthy then. So grow us and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.